Sing for Science is made possible in part by support from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Today's episode was recorded live at the Guthrie Center in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, on July 23, 2022. All proceeds from ticket sales went to benefit the Guthrie Center, whose mission is to cultivate cultural preservation, promote educational achievement, and foster outreach to meet the ongoing needs of their community. For more information, please visit guthriecenter.org. Don't forget to check out our other episodes, and please enjoy today's show. Yes, there's enough food produced in the world to feed everyone an adequate diet. So the question then becomes, why is there hunger in a world of plenty? And that's where we get into the drivers of hunger, which are conflict, global climate and environmental change, economic inequalities, and who controls the food system and determines what people are eating. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around Thought I was getting away back. from it. <laughs> Just a half a mile from the railroad track. And you can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today, we'll be speaking with legendary songwriter and performer Arlo Guthrie. Arlo's 1967 masterpiece, Alice's Restaurant, tells a mostly true story of misadventure with local and military authority alike. The story begins in the very Massachusetts church where we are recording today's episode. And aside from being a hit song with an 18 minute runtime, Alice's Restaurant is most often recognized today as one of the most iconic protest songs of the Vietnam War era. Also joining us is nutritional anthropologist, Dr. Ellen Messer. Dr. Messer helped coin the phrase food wars to describe the two-way relationship between armed conflict and food scarcity among non-combatants. She has spent her career researching world hunger, advocating for the human right to food and studies food systems, food chains, and the policies that influence them. Title of today's episode on the podcast is Alice's Restaurant, Breaking the Links Between Hunger and War. Hello, Arlo and Ellen. Thanks for coming on the show. Hello. So, I've read that this song started as a tongue-in-cheek jingle, and then you added to it over the course of a year during live shows. So I wanted to know, was there ever a point where you decided that this was going to be a protest song? Well, I don't know. Uh, It started simply as being a humorous take on the world that we were living in at the time. And I remember thinking that it wasn't that most people agreed with me. Uh, It wasn't even a lot of people, really. It was what we laughingly referred to as a critical mass, enough to start a chain reaction. And I applied that to the conditions of the time. In other words, I thought that enough people were experiencing the same kind of absurdity that I was in their own way and in their own lives, but 
to hear somebody else tell it made us feel like we were closer. And in that closeness, we developed what I would call the critical mass that eventually swept over the authority of the culture at the time and changed it forever. And I'm, I'm, I was happy to be a part of that. Well, I have read it wasn't so much an anti-war song as an anti-stupidity song. Well, that's how I thought of it. I mean, I remember, and I don't know uh, if you remember as well, but when I was a kid in school, uh, in grade school, in about the fourth or fifth grade, I remember the teacher standing up and saying, when you see the white mushroom cloud out the window, be sure to get under the desk as soon as possible. And she had us do it. And we rehearsed it. But you know, when you're eight years old or nine, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. However, when you begin to think about it later on in life, when you reach the age where you don't take somebody's word for things, but you begin to wonder about these things yourself, it occurred to me that what she was saying was stupid <laughs> and irresponsible. And I knew instinctively that this was not her idea. This was coming from somewhere else. This was coming from an authority that was telling her what to tell kids. And I thought, well, if they're wrong about this, what else are they wrong about? And it led me into the life that I lived, uh, poking fun at and having people laugh at the absurdities of life and therefore helping to relieve the fear and anxiety we had living with a culture that was steeped in traditions that made no sense, hierarchies that made no sense, there was no wisdom there. I don't know, it, it just wasn't even real. I mean, it seemed like phony. And the music was that way, and the advertisements were that way, and so I became part of a group of people who were taking it apart, as it were. Not because we enjoyed the destruction so much, as we hoped that it would change people's attitudes in a way that would be, have a positive outcome. Well, I, I would imagine that growing up as Woody Guthrie's son, it would, it would be hard not to have a, a healthy distrust of authority. But I was wondering if you, did you ever get any direct advice from him about making music while he was still well enough to dispense it? No, <clears throat> I remember, I, I didn't get any advice from my father. Uh, he was ill at the time uh, and preoccupied, you might say. But my mother was also a professional. She had been a professional dancer in the Martha Graham Company, and she's the one that told me, Arlo, if you want to be an entertainer, that's fine, but you should have a plan B, because audiences can be fickle, and they might like you today, but 
tomorrow you never know, they might not like you. And I am pretty sure that if I had taken her advice, I'd have done something else in my life. So I was glad that I didn't listen to her. Me too. Uh, I left myself no options. And I thought, burn every bridge, don't look back, because a person ends up doing what comes most naturally and most easily, if you can. And for me, uh, that would have been, you know, I would have been a forest ranger or a bartender or something, you know. Uh, yeah. That came fairly easily. Uh, and I thought, yeah, I could do that. I didn't mean to be uh, a singer or an entertainer or something like that, but it happened. And it started right here, you know? Well, I hear a real through line from Woody's music to this song in particular, including the talking blues form that it takes. Also, the word massacre seems like something I would hear in a Woody Guthrie song. Do you remember where you got that from, that influence? Well, it's kind of funny, but I had heard records of my father my entire life. That's what I knew of my father as a performer, was the records he had made. And then one day, about 30 years ago, I was in a studio and we were doing a project where I was going to try and sing one of my father's songs, This Land is Your Land, and add to his recording my voice, much like Natalie Cole had done with her father. So we took a copy of my father's record and I realized that, wait a minute, He's not even in a key that is recognizable. <laughs> and with a guitar, you can tune it between keys. You can tune it any way you want. But on the same record, he's playing the harmonica. Mm. And you can't tune a harmonica. <laughs> and the harmonica on the record was also between keys. Yeah. And I realized that there was something faulty about the recording. And so we sped up the recording until the harmonica was actually in a key. Yeah. And my sister was with me and she had tears in her eyes and I said, what's wrong? She said, that's him. That's the voice I remember, not the one on the records. Whoa. And all of this is to say that that was my experience of listening to my father until a few years ago, somebody showed up with a wire recording of him live. And my mother was on stage with him. She's introducing him to the New York audience, 1940, 41, somewhere back in those days. And I sat there with my sister after this wire recording had been restored, and we listened to it. And we laughed because he was funny. And he would be sitting there, you, you can imagine, with my mother saying, um, Woody Guthrie, the famous Dust Bowl balladeer, will now play a song he wrote about the dust in Oklahoma or something, whatever. And he would go on these long tales that had nothing to do with the song. <laughs> And you could, f you could hear her frustration so that by the end of the recording, by the end of the show, she's now saying, and now Mr. Guthrie will briefly 
uh, sing a song about whatever. And I looked at my sister and I said, wait a minute, I thought I invented that. <laughs> and she said, I thought you did too. But so the use of words and the use of storytelling and that idiom, I can't tell you today how much is mine, how much is genetic, how much is absorbed from different sources. All I can tell you is that the information that I had was inadequate until I heard a live performance. And then it made sense. Yeah. And then I said, well, maybe I'm not so special after all. <laughs> and <laughs> that's, I've left it at that. Well, I've heard a, a similar anecdote with Pete Seeger having brought your father on to an event and he was hired to perform music but he didn't, and he just kind of delivered a monologue, and Pete had to kind of cajole him. In Pete the... was like my mother. Uh, he was, uh, Pete, Pete's humor was, uh, Pete came from Puritan stock, let's put it that way. Germanic in nature, not very funny, uh, which is why I loved working with him, because he was so sincere and so deliberate. I thought the combination of that sincerity with a bit of humor that I could add would make for quite an evening. And I loved working with the man because I thought between the two of us, we were able to deliver the messages that were sincerely wrought, but in such a way that they could be digested by people who came to hear us. Mm -hmm. Well, there's this scene in Alice's restaurant where you and Pete are playing in what's supposed to be your father's hospital room. I'm a fan of both of your music, and it, it got me thinking about what a unique connection the two of you had, and over spanning many decades. So if it's not too personal a question, I, I wanted to ask if you could describe your relationship with him, how, or how would you characterize it? Was it a, a brotherhood? Was he a father figure ever? I'm the oldest surviving child of my father. I'm the one who remembers my father when he was healthy, when he was daddy. And so there were other people that came into our lives and fulfilled that niche, as it were. Uh, but for me, nobody could be him but him. And much to the chagrin of people who tried to be, I wouldn't let it go. Not only that, I enjoyed my father, and I enjoyed my memories of him. I was the one old enough. You know, we used to go to the hospital and take him out and bring him home and stuff like that, or go to other places and simple things, like taking him to the men's room, not something my mother could do. That fell to me. I was a young person. I was, you know, 11, 12, 13, but I was old enough and physically capable enough to facilitate my father. I could help. And so my relationship to him was one of trying to make him as comfortable as possible under the circumstances which were difficult enough, especially as his fame 
spread about the same time as his fame was going outward, his capability was going inward. He couldn't express himself publicly and he had to withdraw into a smaller and smaller place that he had some control over himself. Uh, and I was there to witness that and I was there to be as helpful as I could under the circumstance. He would come home from the hospitals and we would have a collection of records of his songs that had been recorded by musicians all over the world in every language imaginable. And he would want to hear them. And I would play them for him. I would put them on, you know, and we'd sit there and listen. I didn't realize I was learning something at the time. I was just a kid facilitating him. But of course, it was all music and that was all I needed. That nourished me as a kid. And so at the same time that I was helping him, I was really helping myself without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And then when you began to get famous, it was during a, a folk renaissance. So being your father's son, was that, um, do, you, do you remember what that was like coming up? I actually grew up at the end of what we used to call the folk scare uh, <laughs> or the, the folk boom or whatever it was. Being Woody Guthrie's kid was helpful, not to me as a performer, because I wasn't performing at that time, but it was helpful in other ways. I could go into a bar and have a scotch and soda mm. when I was 13. <laughs> you know, Woody's kid, give him a drink, you know. <laughs> and everybody knew it. I mean, I wasn't the preacher's son. I was Woody Guthrie's kid. And I took advantage of that as best I could. And it was in, in small ways. It wasn't, had nothing to do with entertainment. It had nothing to do with any of that stuff. However, I did get to meet some incredible people. As a result of that, I absorbed, you might say, some of the essence of those people that I met. I mean, I was two years old when I met Lead Belly. I don't remember Lead Belly but I know that I absorbed some of him. And I knew that because years and years later, I was playing a gig in Oklahoma at a bar and we were done and Lead Belly walked in. And I thought, wait a minute, something ain't right here. He's been dead for years. And he walked in and I looked at him and he had Lead Belly's eyes. And I knew that and it didn't make any sense to me. And it turned out it was Lead Belly's nephew, but it had the same eyes. And I knew them instantly, I recognized them. It was beyond memory. It's not something I remembered. There are some things that you learn and absorb from people that are beyond what you know. And they affect you and they change you and they help you or maybe they don't, but they're real. People have that effect or can have that effect. Pete Seeger is one of those people. You know, I run into people all the time and say, well, you know, I learned this from Pete. Where'd you learn it? I don't know. They don't know, but they absorbed it from him. They, people absorb stuff from each other. 
and uh, which is what I'm doing here today. I'm hoping to absorb something from you over there, but uh, because we're not alone. It's all one kind of thing, and it gets mixed up in ways that we don't always understand. Being in the presence of other people, they become part of you. Maybe it has to do with uh, presence. Maybe it has to do with the food we share. I'm not sure. I mean, you would know more about that than me. Uh, I think that's a cool thing. Yeah. So, Ellen, I want to ask you, because you came of age professionally around the same time as Arlo, uh, a time of awakening not just for artists but also scholars and scientists like yourself. So what inspired you to want to use your work and your voice to try and untangle something as complicated as world hunger? I came of age at a time when the ecology movement was really surfacing. And I became very interested in food systems. And the simplest way to describe food systems is looking at the ecology of food production, what kinds of crops, what kinds of animals, what kinds of technology are producing our food supplies, and then how is that flowing through market systems for affordable or less affordable food? How are people making decisions from their societies and their cultural bases on what are good foods to eat, their preferences, by taste, by cost? by cultural acceptability, how are they making those kinds of choices, and then what are the nutritional consequences and the health consequences of the way in which food is produced, the way it flows, its affordability, and the choices that people make either under duress or by choice, how healthy are they on the basis of these foods? So I was interested in these systems, this whole flow of foods, and I was fortunate to be able to study at the University of Michigan for my PhD, where we were looking at the very long-term development of food systems around the world. We were looking at the evolution of crops, um, maize-based cropping systems in Mexico and South America. We were looking at wheat and barley-based cropping systems in the Near and the Middle East. We were looking at root and tuber crop cropping systems in South America and parts of Asia, rice-based cropping systems in Asia. We were trying to understand these food systems. And it was also the time at which the Green Revolution, the um, development of modern varieties that had high yield potential, were being developed for the developing world where there were very large numbers of very hungry people. This was sort of a couple of decades after World War II. So I immersed myself in these food systems perspectives with the idea that this is where one could really make a difference, because this was also part of our culture, you know, be out there and make a difference, we can all make a difference. And this really was part of this. And another major influence at that point was Frances Moore LePay's book, Diet for a Small Planet. You know, she basically says there's more than enough food produced in the world to feed everyone an adequate diet. The problem is who controls the food system and what people are eating. She was saying, we really have to have diets that basically focus on plant foods and don't feed 60 to 80 percent of our grain crops, grain and legume crops to animals, to livestock, and then we'll see there's much more food available in the world for everyone to eat 
And along with this, there also has to be attention to the labor conditions of the people that produce the food and who owns the land and who controls the water. So she was looking at all these food justice issues and what are now called in political terms food sovereignty issue. You know, who controls the food system? It wasn't simple economics. It really was looking at the politics and the democracy of food. I mean, I've read, you've been described as a scholar activist. And when we first spoke, you taught me about the example of scientist responsibility set by Arthur Galston, the botanist whose uh, discovery led to the development of Agent Orange. And I think it's a, it offers a very compelling story, so please share that. So the late Arthur Galston was a biologist. And I had the privilege of being his colleague at Yale University where I was teaching, it was my first job, and we were sharing students who were interested in crops for developing countries and crops that could promote social justice. They were really interested in this and he was engaging graduate students to train them. And what I later learned was that he was the biologist who in his dissertation project had discovered the action of plant hormones in soybeans that allowed soybean productivity to absolutely boom in the US, it really made the soybean industry, because he discovered the plant hormone that pushed the plant into its flowering stage, at which point the plant stopped investing plant energy in leaves, in its foliage, and instead flowered and seeded and greatly raised productivity of soybean plants. A very, very important discovery. But what he found as he, was, he had isolated these chemicals was that the war industry, and particularly as we, the US was getting into the Vietnam War, and this was sort of one of my connections with your song, was that the war industry was taking the chemical that he had helped discover, I mean it was there, but he helped discover and purify it, putting it together with 2,4-D, which was a very well-known herbicide that was being used commercially in small scale by gardeners in the US. And they were putting these two chemicals together, and that is what became, on a one-to-one -one ratio, Agent Orange that was used to defoliate millions of acres in Vietnam for the alleged purpose of completely clearing forests and mangrove swamps and all areas so that the Viet Cong, the National Liberation Front, couldn't hide from the US and the South Vietnamese armed forces. So when he realized this is what was happening and that to a certain extent he saw his own scientific contributions to this being turned to these horrible, horrible war uses, he organized his fellow biologists and the American Association for the Advancement of Science to protest first to President Johnson and then to President Nixon. And, to, and together, these scientists in their protests pushed the US administration to ban the use of these herbicides, these defoliant chemicals as weapons of war and basically wrote it into the chemical weapons ban treaties that had existed since 1925. So 
he was a real inspiration as someone who saw it as the scientist's ethical responsibility to be aware of these abuses of biology and to take action. Well, I think it would be, it'd be helpful to hear about this phrase you coined, food wars. So I was very fortunate in my career to have been working on these various ecological and food preference and nutritional issues, and then to find a setting where I could pursue all of these together, which was at the World Hunger Program at Brown University. And there, um, a seminar was looking at what countries were in famine, what were the countries that were experiencing extreme food shortage, and what this seminar discovered was that most of these famine countries, and it's still the case today, are countries that are either in active wars or they're suffering the immediate consequences of past wars. So we use the term food wars to talk about the use of hunger as a weapon, which is the active war context. And unfortunately, we have experience of that today, not only in places where food is kept from populations that are hungry that, in, that are in a context of conflict. And this would include Somalia, it would include Yemen, it would include certain places in Nigeria. We would also then talk about the use of hunger as a weapon with the weaponization of food supplies in the Russian-Ukrainian actions. But that's not the only concept that's involved in talking about food wars, because food wars are looking not only at the use of hunger as a weapon or blockades or sanctions, what food wars is also looking at is the hunger that follows as a consequence of conflict. So countries that had the conflict histories were suffering deficits as much as 3% lower crop production and increases in crop production per year in contrast to countries that hadn't been in conflict. And while there are all other kinds of factors, including climate change, environmental issues, other kinds of political issues, economic issues, trade issues that might be involved, it was nevertheless a very important piece of evidence. Again, we're talking about science, evidence-based policy to say that any policies that were going to be trying to improve hunger situations in countries really had to look at those conflict histories and think about how the policies would both take into account the kinds of deficits in personnel, the kinds of deficits in health, the kinds of destruction to land and to seed supplies and to societies when they were introducing these new projects to improve food production, they not only had to take that into account, but they also had to take into account how the way in which they were introducing these projects might produce new conflict. In other words, you give the projects to one ethnic group, the other ethnic group doesn't get it, um, the first ethnic group also gets access to water in a water-scarce area, the other one doesn't get it. It was the responsibility, we argued, that the policymakers really had to take those considerations so that they wouldn't be creating situations of new conflict by the way in which they administered food projects. So the food wars concept really, really looks at the concepts of the relationships between conflict and hunger and breaking the links between conflict and hunger, both from the perspective of preventing situations of hunger and scarcity from creating new conflict, but also then addressing situations of conflict 
um, and, and scarcity in trying to improve situations after a conflict has ended. And so obviously the, the globalized food system is in, incredibly fragile and you're talking about all these different components. So it would help maybe if you could, if we could zoom out and could you give us kind of a bird's eye view of, of how the food system works? So our food systems have been developed in this global context to make it the most efficient. In other words, um, if your supply of fish that's fished somewhere in the Atlantic is going to cost a lot to process, to cut up that fish. In this very efficient global food system, the fish travels to Southeast Asia. That's where it gets cut up and processed. Then it gets shipped back to Europe or Canada where it gets packaged so that when you find a package of fish and it says product of Canada, that means they packaged it there. It doesn't mean the fish hasn't been all over the world. This is the most efficient way to do things if you're only looking at how you, the business person who's controlling the fish, can provide the lowest cost fish to the consumer with marginally higher profits for yourself. Well, what we saw in this kind of a food system is that when the pandemic struck and really broke all of these global food chains, was that probably wasn't the best way to operate you wanted to have sustainable food supplies. And the food policy people, what they said, and they were correct, was that the world really had to rethink how food systems worked. And they had to invest in building in some buffers. And the buffers, I mean, the term that's usually used here are redundancies. Because the most efficient, maximally efficient food systems eliminated all the alternative suppliers. They eliminated all the alternative transport routes. And the result was when any of those supply routes or original crop places were disrupted, then everything stopped. And that's what we saw, um, particularly during the earlier months of the pandemic, that everything stopped. That's where we began to get more attention to how can we restore regional food systems? What kinds of investments should be made in local food systems to try to produce, yes, redundancies. They may not be the most efficient, but they may be the ones that will give us greater sustainability. The other term that's often used is resilience. That is, instead of growing only the most efficient wheat crop with the certain chemicals that have been used to make this crop maximally sufficient as long as there's no multi-year drought, as long as there's no disruption to shipping by railroads or any other ways, as long as there's no pest that has suddenly learned to eat this particular variety. To have a more resilient system, there has to be greater diversity built into each piece of the food chain. So these are some of the issues now that are being discussed in high places in the United Nations, high places in the US Department of Agriculture, but also by many non-government organizations that are trying to figure out how do we recenter our food systems so our food supplies will be more certain under conditions of climate uncertainty, more reliable under conditions of political instability, 
more nutritious under conditions of economic change that's leading to unaffordability of food? These are some of the major questions that are being raised right now and are being dealt with by your county, state, national, and also our international diplomats. How is your confidence in their ability to uh, work that through? Because like you said, to have more variety may be beneficial on one hand. Economically, it's probably not. Oh, I think the institutional officers are all struggling with each other at this point in time because they have vested interests in the old system. And they also have lobbyists who think they have an interest in maintaining as much of the old system as possible. And I think it's, when we talk about being a scholar activist, one of the obligations of those who study these issues and teach about these issues is to make sure that people are in touch with their environmental organizations, with their local farmer organizations, with the kinds of international organizations that are monitoring food systems. There's a lot going on. So Let me, let me ask yeah, you this. So yeah. In the 50 years that you've been working on this, it seems anyway that the general outcome of life uh, in other words, people are living seemingly longer, healthier, happier, for the most part. Is, is that not true? I think people are living longer as we look at longevity. They're not succumbing to illnesses, infectious disease, um, certain kinds of heart disease and cancer. They used to succumb to it at younger ages. But things could be much better which is why we need... But it has improved, in other words, from, from when, it st when you started 50 years ago. Okay. It seems to me that there's been a huge improvement, even with the breakdowns of systems and people trying to remedy that or remediate it in some way. I have very mixed feelings about that. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, no, I have very mixed feelings about that because on the one hand, this is what the proponents of the old system would say. They'd say, look, People are living, you know, life expectancy has increased. Well, I mean, I haven't, I haven't yeah. had an aunt who recently passed away, but she lived till like 98 or something. She never ate a healthy thing in her life. Mm -hmm. right. Everybody who I knew ate right. healthy food is dead. Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah. Everybody, I mean, everybody knows examples. That's like that. But that's why we have statistics. That's why I'm asking. No, that's because why. Because you're a, <laughs> that's why you know more than me. That's why scientists have statistics, because they're looking, yes, there are individuals. And that's really important. Scientists are actually trying to study those individuals. You never ate a healthy thing in your life. You're really 98, you're not 25. You know the, the old cartoon joke where they're looking at an old man, they're saying, how did you, how did you manage to live so long? You're smoking and you're, um, you're eating all this terrible food. And you know, it turns out, well, yeah, I'm 46. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you know. but um, that's why the scientists are actually trying to understand what are the characteristics? The what I'm getting What at are the it, characteristics of individuals? What I'm asking is, but, is there an under, are there two worlds here? One that sort of goes on by itself with all of the variety and all of the stuff that you mentioned as being beneficial, and one that goes on on an economic scale that is wrestling with 
the different approaches that are needed today that might not have been needed even 20 years ago. So, well, I think it's more than two worlds, actually. And there's the economic world that pushed to have these most maximally efficient, just-in-time global systems. And then there's the ecological world that says, you know, nature always pushes back. I think you've controlled one pest, and then another pest evolves and knocks out the next crop. It's a continual, it's a continual struggle. There are also the social issues. We could argue we have very efficient production in the heartland of the U.S. of basic grain crops, but those grain crops mostly don't go to feed people directly. They feed livestock. The livestock's polluting the soils, the waterways, and the livestock's getting sick. They're in concentrated feeding operations, and the animals are subject to sudden devastation by various bacterial diseases, viral diseases. So what looks like this one world of really great success has these built-in vulnerabilities. There's this continual tussle of what's short-term success, what are the vulnerabilities that are built in to those short-term success, and who's going to be challenging the status quo that says everything's fine. Status quo challenge comes from two places, in my opinion, humble opinion, in my, my humble opinion. One of them is from looking very carefully at the vulnerabilities in our food systems and also how the way that food is produced is affecting the workers who are suffering terribly because they're the ones who are getting squeezed in these maximally efficient systems. So that's one side that's challenging the status quo. The other side that's challenging the status quo are certain kinds of innovative industries like the genetic engineering and the chemical industries that are saying, oh no, we're running out of food. And that's their argument for producing more food through their exclusive, patented, licensed technologies. So you've got those different currents challenging the status quo. And my response to that, because I think you really do want to know my response to that, is that we all have responsibilities, personal responsibilities, to see where our food is coming from. What are we eating? Who's producing it? How are the people that produce and move that food being treated all along the food chain? And are we eating food that's healthy? If not, who's producing this unhealthy food? And how do we make changes? And is while that, you- Is that a luxury for us? I mean, it seems like wealthy countries can afford that discussion, but if I was a starving Marvin in some of the nations that you mentioned, I wouldn't care where it's coming from or how it's made or as long as I got something to eat. Okay, uh, but we've got people sitting here who just had a really wonderful meal. And we, as those who are in this privileged setting, have a responsibility to begin by looking at our own food system and asking how it relates to these other places. I heard conversations around the table, let's say, about outstanding coffee. Now, it's important to sort of look at, well, where's the coffee coming from? Not only how, to, how much does it cost, but where's it coming from? How are the workers that produce that coffee being treated? How is the land and the coffee plants, how are they being treated? These are the kinds of very small-scale investigations that anyone can do. They can take the time to do that. So the big lesson for me in terms of food organizations from the 1970s onward 
was that the, li the life of activists and scholar activists would always be very much immersed in finding other people to work with to be able to move ideas forward. I've read you talk about this two-pronged approach to limiting the effects of food wars. What are those two areas? So the, the, so the two-pronged approach really are to try to prevent scarcity situations that will provoke conflict or will stoke or sustain conflict. And then the other side of that is in places that are post-conflict is to make sure that um, policies are taking into account conflict potential and not simply doing what seems simple and straightforward from an economic point of view of business as usual. That is proposing sesame production in a sub-Saharan African country where water is scarce and conflict over water is high or cotton production where cotton revenues are commodities that produce conflict. We can show that through evidence. The point is to take that evidence into consideration and not continue policies that, in, to take your term, your very simple and straightforward term, that seem to be absurd in terms of the existing conditions. Let me ask you this. I mean, because aside from hunger uh, or the scarcity of food, you're also a social anthropologist. Correct. So in these conflict-ridden areas, what do you think? Is, is it more that there are bad leadership, or is there a general demeanor of cultural ineptitude that allows for, where, in other words, where does the problem actually come from? Does it come from leaders who mislead people into conflict? Or is the conflict there out of reasonableness in the first place? And you know, I mean, if if two guys are fighting over a fish, that makes some sense. But if one guy says, "Wait, everybody, that guy stole the fish," he might be lying. But you know what I'm saying? There's a there's different approaches to how these troubles seem to occur in the first place. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are as a social anthropologist to see whether or not these are cultural issues that, where people were distrusting other areas of that culture, or, or is this just people feeding themselves, as it were, uh, at the expense of other people's ridiculousness? Those are, those are really important questions, and I wouldn't generalize. Okay, I would start out by saying what we did was we tried to look place by place. So, you know, going back to the Vietnam War, there there were very long-standing social and economic inequalities that really pushed people into the conflict situation that gave the National Liberation Front uh, a sense that they would have willing recruits if they wanted to challenge the government, which is what happened there. Um, these were concerns where people felt that their land, their access to resources, their 
autonomy. But that's they, not how they, it was sold here. That's not how it was sold here. It was sold as an ideological conflict. Right. And my own sense Because was, I remember them telling me yeah, that if yeah. we didn't stop the commies in right, uh, right. Vietnam, they were right. going to be in New Jersey. Yeah. So we could do a whole we could we could do a whole conversation. We could do the entire conversation for the next three hours on that because I've I've tried to think about that a lot. But one of my colleagues wrote, wrote a book called *The Peasant Wars of the 20th Century*, and he looked conflict by conflict at about a half dozen conflicts where the trigger issues usually were a sense on the part of those who were joining the conflict, that they had no options, that they were going to starve and be oppressed, or they were going to try to fight their way out. Well, I mean, it's so interesting that, so because I remember after the war in Vietnam, I had a Vietnamese family stay with us, about 15 people. And we gave them a home and set them up and stuff like that. These were not peasants. They were people who fought for the most part uh, on the side of the South Vietnamese and who had to abandon Vietnam because even as they were leaving, the guys from the north were coming down and being just as oppressive That's right. yeah. as, well. as the guys that... Right, and, and, the, and, a, and a worse example of that was in Cambodia with Pol Pot regime totally decimated what was yeah. left of the country. It was, it was Absol nuts. Absolutely horrible. But, so, I mean, in that but, case, though, it seemed to me like that was a one guy misleading a whole bunch of other guys. I can't say if it was only one guy, but it was a regime that was certainly wreaking havoc on the country. No, no question about it. But it wasn't Sammy Jones. I mean, but, we know but, who the guy is. Right. We have Pol Pot and, and his comrades. And his, right. And his comrades. And we've seen that here to some extent, not as mean or nasty. Well, maybe the same mean and nasty, but not so successful. Uh, so it concerns me only that it seems that the best defense against something like that is a cultural one, not a political one. So it's going to be cultural and political because the political culture is what allows a particular regime to seize power and for some length of time to stay in power. So it's always going to be cultural politics, political culture, as well as economics, who controls the resources. Historically, does that hold up? I would say historically that holds up. Again, I'm a little bit uneasy in presenting generalizations, yeah. but as we look I'm an entertainer. I do it all of the time. Or I used to, anyway. Generalize everything. Yeah, well, if I do that as an academic, I'll, I'll have... That's I'll why have, I'm not I'll an have, academic. I'll, I'll, have lots, I'll have lots of feisty students protesting. But I think as we look across the world right now, I mean, we see one Russian leader who is controlling the press in Russia, telling the Russian population one thing about what's going on, going in and wreaking havoc on Ukraine, you know, just devastating Ukraine. Does there have to be a cultural shift? Well, Ukraine had a cultural shift. That's what the Russians were fighting. And I think- But there's, does there need to be one in Russia? There needs to be one in Russia. It's quite dangerous to have that cultural shift well, in Russia. It used to be dangerous here. I mean- uh... Yeah. I, mean, we I remember being f 
followed by the FBI and others uh, because they they had a I mean, it wasn't even something certain, but they were pretty sure that there was a leadership issue. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that the masses of dumb people were being misled by some kind of intelligentsia. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm not intelligent enough to be an intelligentsia, <laughs> but I'm not stupid, so I can't be one of those guys. Why are they following me around? Uh, well, as you said, they're pretty absurd. Well, I had one guy, I had one guy at the end, I live on a dirt road, dead end. It was a guy on my telephone pole fixing it for two years. You know, I, we used to call him up, invite him in for coffee or something, you know, but he never answered. But it just seemed to me that it was dangerous there were people killed, there were kids killed who were demonstrating in this country against uh, those policies of the time. It can't be more dangerous than getting killed. Seems to me there are people being killed now in Russia for their views. Mm-hmm. I find it very difficult to believe that that is a, a healthy uh, cultural Russian history. Uh, it seems to me that it's like one guy and his cronies affecting other people. How do you prevent that? Well, uh, if if we're around next weekend, we can do another episode on oh. the second oh. <laughs> Russian Revolution and Arlo's FBI no, file. Just asking. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> uh, but um, I want to I want to thank you both for contributing to this. Uh, this has been an incredible conversation, and please help me in thanking Dr. Ellen Messer. And Arlo Guthrie. Stay up to date with all things Arlo at ArloGuthrie.com. And keep an eye out for Ellen's forthcoming book, Never Ending Hunger, Images, Ideas, and Action of U.S. NGOs from the 1970s to the Present. You can also visit her blog at FoodAnthro.com. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and is made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Our music is by Panoram, live sound by Frank Kennedy, mix engineering by Lou Carlozo, event production by Molly White, footage capture by Elena Oxman and Steve White, social media management by Bailey Constance, and digital production by Keenan Cush. Special thanks to Garth Brown of Cairncrest Farms for his help with today's episode, and to our hosts at the Guthrie Center, Annie Guthrie, Mo Guthrie, Abe Guthrie, and George Lay. If you liked today's episode, please tell a friend about us and give us a review and some stars. For more information, go to singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening. <laughs>